within a bleak and dismal swamp, hidden beneath its murky waters, lies the headquarters of the most sinister villains of all time. The Legion of Doom. What's up, Lonely? Dude, I had to call in because I'm listening to your latest episode a second time because I absolutely loved it, and I needed to hear you say Tomato City again. <laughs> I've never heard that used for dis- way to describe a character dying, but I love it. It's <laughs> it's maybe the best one I've heard. So, dude, thank you so much, man. Uh, this was a fantastic episode. Love the way you handled, um, you know, the death of the player and all that. Uh, you're, it just sounds like you're doing an amazing job, man. Keep up the good work. Peace out. Hey, Lonely Jason here. I realized I had never called into your last podcast. I meant to. But I really enjoyed listening to your recaps and talk about your little time travel thing and time, time dilemmas. You know, it sounds like they solved it in the best Bill and Ted fashion. So, that you know, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure and and Time Bandits, I think, are are you know still my favorite time travel movies for slightly different reasons. But I, I think both the time travel works in the context of those both those movies perfectly well, given the the rules those movies set for their universes, right? So, just want to say, really did enjoy it, and look forward to talking to you soon. Take care. Hello and welcome to Camping with Owl Bears. I am the Lonely Adventurer. We had Joe Richter at the top there from Hindsightless and the Wheel or Woe podcast. Uh, I don't really know what to say about it, but yeah, tomatoes. <laughs> uh, I have a way with words. Uh, also, Jason Connolly there. Uh, always good to hear from you, Jason. Jason was kind enough to have me on his show, Nerds RPG Variety Cast, uh, just a few days ago, episode 118, where we talk a bit about my Zine Quest 2 project, Glaive, uh, which obviously, if you listen to this podcast, you know it's just kind of my set of house rules based largely on BX, Nave, and a little bit of Black Hack, and uh, oddly enough, some uh, Fate Accelerated, which is a strange... Uh, bedfellow for those other games but it works for us so yeah uh like i said link in the show notes and uh, check that out so we played some dungeons and dragons last friday and had a pretty good time i've been trying to think how i want to go about doing uh this recap uh this is my third or fourth attempt at uh recording this and uh, I just kind of get into a ramble and it kind of goes kind of goes in circles for a bit. So I think I'm going to take a different uh, a different approach here and do kind of more of an overview of the scenario that the characters are involved in right now. So the party headed out from Haven uh, towards the village of Brewers Bridge, which has been granted uh, as a fife to one of the player characters who is now Lord FJ, and the party decided they wanted to go and see what's going on there get them established and uh but they didn't want to be distracted by it too much they they have a a goal it's a bit bigger than visiting a village they're going to try and you know find the 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 living corpse of the caretaker at the center of our world and uh heal it of the far realm parasite that is infecting it and is making the world kind of an unstable dangerous place um, so that presented a bit of a challenge to me. And what I finally ended up landing on was that the entire town 
is dead. Um, so it would be an interesting adventure site, but once this, uh, once they've explored it and, and uncovered the mystery there and, and hopefully set things aright, we are left with just a, an empty and abandoned village. And repopulating it might be another game down the line, but uh, there will, there's really no ticking clock on it in that situation, so they can kind of wander away from it and come back to it if they choose to. Uh, before we left Haven, uh, the characters had a run-in with the armorer that they had contracted to resize a set of uh, a suit of magical light armor for Belladonna, the halfling mage. Uh, but they forgot to tell him that it was a magical item. And so while they were in the Tower of the Sages doing the little um, uh, time loop adventure that I talked about in the last two episodes, they uh, the basically the suit exploded as he attempted to uh, to alter it. Luckily, there was an NPC magic user on hand who was able to uh, prevent it from turning into a five-alarm fire, but his workshop was pretty messed up. And so it's going to cost him an additional 200 gold in repairs and also contracting costs because now the armorer, now that he knows what he's dealing with, is going to have to uh, contract, uh, bring in a subcontractor mage to uh, work, I guess, counter incantations while he fiddles with the the armor. I'm not real sure. I haven't thought about specifically how that works, but it, it, it made sense in the moment. Uh, we also had a run-in with some dwarves who were very concerned uh, with the fact that our bugbear rogue type, uh, Cletus, is carrying a what is clearly a magical, well not clearly magical, but clearly a uh, a dwarven warhammer of some status. And uh, this was Maul's magic hammer. And there was a whole thing with it. Uh, no one, they've never figured this out, but the hammer is particularly useful against uh, orcs. And uh, it was designed during a period of war when uh, the dwarves and the last world they were on were in a generations-long war with uh, several orc tribes. And uh, they never quite uncovered that because they haven't run into any orcs because they ended up not going to visit the dwarven ruins uh, <laughs> in the uh, in the old world they were in. So it's just a plus one hammer at this point. Uh, and so I thought the... But mechanically, it doesn't really line up with the idea of the rogue and how they function just mechanically. And that is one of those things that just sets off my player OCD, I guess. Um, and I wouldn't say I'm a min-maxer, but I do love a nicely optimized and synergized, if I could use that word, character. And a two-handed Warhammer is not really suitable for skulky, sneaky rogue stuff. Uh, so this was an opportunity to, uh, we had a little confrontation, one of the dwarves eventually to kind of, uh, de-escalate things offered in exchange a trade for the hammer uh, and he has this uh, spiked chain that is a uh, master crafted and whatnot so it essentially would function uh, as far as uh, any sort of bonuses to hit or anything would be exactly the same but it's more of a uh, to use fifth edition terms uh, it's a finesse weapon so uh, Cletus can take advantage of their dexterity which is far superior to their strength uh, ability uh, and I decided to give it some some interesting uh, tricks that it can do. So it has reach, and uh, it is it gets advantage anytime uh, Cletus attempts to restrain or impede or trip someone with it. So sacrificing their attack, they can uh, mess with an enemy and basically use it as a. It's, I I like mechanics like that because they are not benefiting directly from it, but they can set their teammates up to deliver powerful blows or have advantage on their attacks or, or what have you. So yeah, so we did that, 
and uh, spent the night in Haven because everyone was pretty beat up after the Tower of Sages and then set out in the morning on their horse claws for Brewer's Bridge. Uh, along the way, they also ran into some random weather. One of the suggestions of one of my players, I pulled them several months ago about things they would like to see in this strange artificial O'Neill Cylinder world. And one of them had suggested that because of the nature of the island, uh, which this place is called, that uh, the weather would be would not operate the way it would on a normal in a normal world. And so they ran into some uh, starlight rain on their way. I created a little... Uh, random table and literal beams of light were falling from the sky like uh, rain and as they pooled on the ground uh, the puddles became doorways into deep space and as they got beyond a certain threshold they started to whistle ominously and small objects were drawn towards their threshold and sucked out into the vacuum of space uh, so the party quickly took shelter in a, uh, in a shepherd's lean-to and did their best to not get hit by the stuff um, it was uh, an interesting run-in. It was, I think I need to get some solid mechanics to attach to this, because after just kind of describing it and narrating it, uh, there was nothing to do but wait it out, and there was no mechanics for how to avoid it or uh, any kind of trouble you might run into. And I suppose, you know, game masters who are much better at improv than myself would probably have uh, a fun time with this and no problem running with it, but I, I like to have... Uh, that stuff settled out in advance so I just know okay if they run into X I roll on table Y and that tells me uh, that sets up the scenario for what is going to happen and then I narrate that um, so I just need a little more framework that I need to add to that stuff so that was the trip to Brewers Bridge uh, when what they noticed uh, initially upon arriving in town when they left Haven the farmers were out in their fields just beginning to uh, preparing to bring in the harvest but at Haven the fields looked a little overgrown and ratty like they hadn't been tended to in a few weeks and were in need of a little TLC. Although it didn't strike them as super weird, uh, it was a clue that something was not quite right. So let's talk about the town of Brewer's Bridge. I keep trying to do a walkthrough of our session and it's just, it's too long. Uh, there's a lot of moving parts, so let's just talk about the scenario. Everyone in Brewer's Bridge is dead and is reliving the last day of their lives, groundhog style. There is a keep up on a hill uh, or up on a slab of uh, limestone accessible only through a tunnel that starts in the market square of the town. And the villages sort of cluster around the base of this, this uh, cliff. And uh, how it all happened was uh, Lord Maddox, the former Lord of Brewer's Bridge, had uh, formed a partnership with a necromancer several months ago, and they were building a device that would allow Maddox to raise an army of the undead en masse and uh, then march on Haven because he wanted to be king. Uh, unfortunately for him, he died in a boulet tunnel uh, in the very first adventure that the Albert gang had uh, on this world, so that never happened. Uh, but what he didn't know was that he narrowly avoided an attempt on his life because one of the members of his adventuring party was a traitor, an elf named Bryn, uh, who the party just recently interacted with. Uh, she seems to be uh, part of the entourage of a Lady Blackbird, who is a lord of another village in the, in the Petty Kingdom, and uh, kind of a jilted ex-lover of Maddox, uh, but who was still working with him out of a, supposedly out of a sense of professionalism, but she was actually in cahoots with the niece. And... Uh, 
they were going to kill him and take over the two towns and they uh, lady blackbird also wants to be in charge of haven so there's a little bunch of petty nobles who all want to take over it's very soap opery now my players have no idea about any of this this is all just sort of running in the background um and what happened was uh ren sabotaged the uh the device that would allow the wizard the necromancer magar to raise these undead for lord maddox and it went off like a necrobomb essentially and uh, killed everything within uh several miles of the village uh including the farm animals the insects the bugs the birds the whatever and so when the party shows up at town it's six weeks later and everyone is living in this strange loop and they need to figure out what's going on the the town itself is mostly harmless um the keep itself is a small dungeon full of undead that are going to do their best to kill the party um we had a lot of fun kind of role-playing interactions with everyone they quickly grokked on to the fact that the townsfolk thought that uh the apple blossom fair which was which was happening concurrent with the party's uh boulet hunt adventure several weeks ago uh, six weeks ago in game the townsfolk thought that was actually still a few days off and we're looking forward to it and uh, uh several of them are getting ready to travel to haven to celebrate uh, and whatnot and so this re- this this then sent the party looking for uh doing some calendar comparisons and whatnot and then figure they figured out how much time had gone by uh they then worked out some ways to figure out that everyone is a ghost uh they had some strange interactions where i, I like to i like to layer my information um you usually do three layers there's what you just see automatically when you enter a space or a, a point on a, a node on a point crawl there's what you see if you actively look and then there's what you can see if you spend a lot of time searching and possibly rolling dice so on the surface level brewer's bridge looks normal um nothing out of uh out of skew looking a bit deeper uh they could realize that while they hear the smith at work on his in his forge the forge has been cold for some time and he's just been flattening the same bar of iron for a month and a half the carpenter likewise has been sawing the same plank into smaller and smaller pieces uh and and things like this uh there was a bit it was a market day in town and once they started looking closer they realized that all of the produce and all of the food that was uh on sale at the market was just black and rotten and collapsed in on itself uh it didn't stop them though from purchasing some of it at the range building uh while being social with some of the dead townsfolks as they were investigating <laughs> didn't stop them from purchasing some of them and pretending to eat them because all the town folks seemed to think they were just great uh they couldn't see the rot or the decay that was uh, occurring around them farmers out in the field were commenting about how good the crops were looking and in fact they were getting a bit ratty and overgrown and the time to harvest them was was quickly passing um and they did discover one living person in town uh the monk in the town's uh temple and i kind of played him up like is it the artilleryman in uh the war of the worlds the guy that's in uh he's just hunkered down in his basement and he's just gonna wait out the alien invasion and then start a new civilization uh when it's gone and he's he's kind of just lost his mind and that that's his plan he refuses to leave the abbey uh he thinks all if he does all the the dead town folks are going to swarm him and eat his soul uh, he is able despite being completely mad uh with a bit of kindness on the part of the players they were able to work out from him that the a certain time there was this massive green flash from the keep above and it uh it blew in 
uh, portion of the abbey destroying a large stained glass window dedicated to Paylor. Uh, but that was actually what saved this guy's life. Uh, he has several strange pet theories about why he's still alive and thinks he's been chosen and etc cetera, etc cetera. but in fact it's just random luck that he was standing in the right place at the right time uh, mostly so that if the players just ever ran into him he could uh, dump a whole lot of uh, information on them <laughs> so they know they need to get into the keep um, Oh, and a bit of the, but they wanted to figure out a bit more backstory there uh, Belladonna had a very uncomfortable uh, conversation with one of the uh, the town's folks, old Mother Hemp, who was kind of a bit of a shut-in ever since her son uh, had his mind destroyed. Her son was a an apprentice to the necromancer Magar up in the keep. He learned too much about uh, Maddox's plans and was going to rat him out, and so they just they destroyed his mind. And so he's in a vegetative state, and this old woman's been taking care of him since then. But she's been dead for six weeks. He's been dead for slightly more than six weeks. Well, also six weeks. It's a few more hours old, more dead than his mother. Um, he drowned in his bath uh, when the blast went off and his mother does not recognize this so she is continually filling his bath to bathe him because that was the last thing she was doing when he died so the bath is overflowing there's mushrooms growing on the walls the the whole cottage is flooded and there's a six week old corpse just submerged barely below the surface of the bath water Um, and Belladonna had to play it cool and uh, uh, role play that out it was funny because as as I was writing this it's not um, it's not particularly as I was writing it I wasn't envisioning it as being particularly gruesome um, because I knew, I guess, that the townsfolks were not a threat. They were just a mystery. However, the players didn't know this. And so I think the descriptions of, of, of rotting food and flies and this corpse and whatnot, the, uh, the creep uh, vibe around the table uh, or around the virtual table went up very quickly. Um, inadvertently, but it was, a, it was a nice touch. I'm kind of glad. I didn't plan it, but I'm really glad it happened. It's funny, I don't like horror games because I just, I don't think it's really possible to... Uh, uh, unless you buy into the idea that you have to play someone who's going to make dumb decisions and be scared of things you know I don't think the players feel that fear Um, and it's much easier to break that immersion with cell phones and the lights are on and and whatever but but when you do it by accident like this it works great (laughs) Um, so yeah so they eventually figured out what was going on that the townsfolks were insubstantial everything was rotten everyone was a ghost and that they were in this loop um and that was the majority of the game but then they decided they wanted to get into that keep but there was a portcullis blocking the tunnel um i had assumed well no i had i had assumed that they would forget they had an easy way to get around this so between all the adventurers they must have 200 feet of rope and 50 feet of it is uh enchanted rope of climbing they also have an aracocra in their party jd the owl man he can fly um, so yeah, there's a 60-foot wall in front of them uh, of, of solid rock and, and the curtain wall of the keep, but uh, it would have been trivial for him to take the rope, fly up there, secure the rope, and toss it down to everybody. Um, but this did not occur, so of course we had to get much more complicated, and he, uh, he used his objectify spell, as he often does, uh, to turn into, once again, a marble, uh, which uh, Maul slung him uh, with his slingshot through the portcullis, um, and he was able to begin working the the winch and wheel that would raise the portcullis with the help of the characters uh, also lifting from their side and eventually get it up high enough for everyone to slip underneath um and it took quite a while and quite a lot of coordination and uh a lot of hemming and hawing to have that happen and then yeah 
I guess, you know, leave it to players to overcomplicate things. But uh, despite them overcomplicating it, it was uh, a lot of fun. And then when I pointed out the, the very easy way they could have gotten in, there was a lot of uh, groaning and, uh, you know, forehead slapping at the table. So <laughs> that was good. Um, so the party made their way up this long, dark tunnel that just emerges into the bailey of the keep. On the eastern edge of the, the eastern side of the keep was uh, full of uh, just overgrown truck gardens, uh, big vegetable gardens. Uh, the keep itself occupied kind of the western grounds of the bailey and to the south was a large stone building uh, it was a food storage building or it appeared to be anyway um it is actually where the town keeps their winter grains but it is full of skeleton warriors uh not that the party opened them up um the keep itself is just a simple three floor affair just a square building with a, a side tower uh and they could see a large uh, a wide exposed staircase leading up to a small drawbridge that entered the singular tower on the keep. Uh, and that seemed to be the only way in that they could see. And what they also saw uh, was about a dozen zombies wandering around the courtyard. I figured the odds were 50-50 that the party would either try to bypass the slow-moving zombies or they would just rush in and try to destroy them. Um, true to form, they rushed in to try to destroy them. <laughs> uh, and they took a bit of a pounding in the process. The zombies are not um, particularly tough creatures. They're, what, two hit dice, I think. Uh, and these guys are all fourth and fifth level at this point. But I decided to incorporate the mechanic from fifth edition that says when a zombie is reduced to zero hit points, they make a constitution save to stay on their feet and uh, gain regain one hit point and keep fighting. Uh, and that, that uh, role is modified by any uh, negative uh, hit points beyond zero that they take. So it does get harder and harder the, the more damage you inflict on them. But the zombies rolled really well on their constitution saves. I got several nat 20s in the combat and the, the crew took a bit of a beating. So they decided it was time to run for the stairs. So they pelt up the uh, exposed staircase leading up to the second story of the tower and in through the one little door up there locking it behind them with a horde of zombies scratching at the door. The combat lasted a couple of rounds, during which each round uh, more and more zombies were appearing from around the corners of the keep. Uh, which I think that's what finally clued them into the fact that they weren't going to win this fight and that uh, discretion was the better part of valor. Um, so they bar the door behind them the, with the zombies all pounding on the, the heavy oaken door and uh, examine the room that they find themselves in. It's a typical tower room. There's arrow slits looking out, there's murder holes above, and uh, there's a locked door to the west. And while Farcan works to pick the lock, uh, they got a pretty low roll, so it took a while. Mulch decides to get down on the ground and investigate, uh, see what they can see if there's a gap between the door and the floor. So I decided there was, and he could see a metal, large metal grate on the floor just beyond the door. And uh, you can see what looked like several pairs of skeleton feet uh, across the room. And so they decided once the door was, the lock was successfully picked, uh, they would quick open the door, rush in, and, and take out the skeletons. Uh, Mulch, uh, FJ, it's usually FJ and Mulch in the front, but Mulch had taken quite a beating in the zombie fight. And so it was FJ and Belladonna in the front row, uh, which I thought was an interesting choice, but sure, why not? Uh, and as they emerged from the door and stepped over the grate, 
uh, dozens of zombie arms shot up and started grabbing at them. This was a great idea I got from uh, a fellow I interact with on the OSR Discord called Avalanche Surfer. I was looking for good like pairings of undead monsters whose abilities worked well together. And this trap I thought was really devious and I really liked it. Um, so the zombies grab you from below through the grates. They do no damage, they just restrain the character. They grapple them, essentially. And meanwhile, across the room, the skeleton archers pepper them with arrows, uh, which is exactly what happened. Uh, it took a while for Belladonna to get free. Uh, behind her, JD and Farcan and Cletus were hacking at the the zombie arms. Uh, meanwhile, FJ flew into a combat rage, as he is wont to do, and just basically destroyed most of the skeletons. Uh, Mulch rushed in and took out the last one, uh, and they were eventually able to get free uh, of the arms. The only thing that saved Belladonna is that she has a talent that says any creature, uh, if she is in a group of people, uh, a creature has to make a wisdom save in order to single her out as a, as a, as a threat, as someone worth attacking until she acts in combat. Uh, kind of a hobbit skill, I guess. Uh, although Cletus the Rogue also, also took this. And... I think I still like it, but it is a pain in my butt as a DM every now and then. <laughs> but I like it. I like the flavor of that. Um, the idea that you can seem so unimpo uh, unimposing that uh, you are ignored until you prove uh, yourself to be a danger. Anyway, so uh, FJ ended up taking most of the arrow strikes, and he's heavily armed and armored, so uh, didn't do too bad there. And they quickly cleared this room out as well, and that is where we uh, ended it for the night. Before them to the west are two large double doors. Uh, to the south, in the southeast corner of the room, is a spiral staircase leading up to the next floor and an archway leading into uh, a room that is better lit than the one they are in, so they can see it's something, maybe possibly an office or a scribe station, but they, they'll have to go in to actually investigate to, to figure it out. Uh, and that was where we left it. So it was a, it was a good game. We, we played for quite a while. Got a lot of good role-playing in with the townsfolk. That was a lot of fun. And I guess we'll see what happens next time. I've got quite a bit of work to do still. Um, I just barely got the maps and uh, visual aids together for this last session. Uh, normally, I like to enroll 20. I've been using... Uh, dungeon scribe I dun dungeon scrawl I'm sorry it's a little uh in-app uh web uh, oh man words right <laughs> you can't it's a a, a little in-browser uh dungeon maker and it you can create these nice little kind of old school Dyson logos looking uh maps and I've been doing that for uh, a lot of our sessions lately and uh, having good results uh, but I like to go into Roll20 and add in the dynamic lighting so put in invisible walls so that the characters can't actually see what the rooms beyond them look like and I didn't get a chance to do that so I'll probably go back and do that although they're vague enough that maybe I don't really need to I don't know um, I might be overthinking the, uh, the the tactical play at this point uh, and also, though, I need to finish keying out the second and third floors of this keep. I was, I, I guessed right and pretty much only prepared what I need needed for this session, which rarely happens. Um, sometimes it's nice to overwork it because then that means for the next session I wouldn't have anything to do. But um, yeah, uh, the only thing I know for sure uh, left on this floor, there uh, are a couple of uh, ghosts uh, in the same vein as the town folk in the kitchen. Um, and waiting for them in the main hall beyond the double doors that the skeletons were guarding is a banshee, and we'll see how that goes. Uh, I was looking at different versions of D&D &D for 
uh, special tricks that the uh, and mechanics for the vam- uh, vampires for the banshees, and uh, fifth edition let a little bit of O D and D slide into uh, its rules for the banshee. It's got a nasty whale that uh, you have to do a cer- everyone has to do a save, and if you fail, it, you drop immediately to zero hit points, which uh, I think I'm going to use, even though it sounds a bit brutal. But uh, hmm, we'll see. Uh, and then waiting in the wings in the summer and winter parlors. Uh, are more zombies, so if the, if the Banshee gets off her whale, that will uh, draw their attention to, and we'll have a uh, another encounter with a bunch of moving parts. But we'll see. We'll see how that happens. There is an opportunity for the party to uh, come at that main hall from a different angle, and if they do, they will encounter at least one group of zombies first, and they can kind of take things out piecemeal. Um, <clears throat> so it's either going to be an incredibly difficult fight or one that they can take in chunks, and it will all be up to uh, the decisions the players make. Um, next episode. So next episode, we'll talk about uh, keying out the rest of the keep, I think, and also um, reworking a couple of characters. Um, we, I had a chance yesterday to speak with uh, the player of Mulch, my wife, and uh, friend KB, who plays uh, Farkan the Elf, and they're both just a little dissatisfied uh, with how their characters are playing out. They're not... Um, they're not mechanically playing the way they had envisioned them as they've been creating and building them. Uh, so we're going to get together and see what we can do. Maybe just do a complete redesign of each character, um, which would be fine. I've done that with a bunch of the other players so far. When we when we changed worlds, I, I let the wizards uh, uh, redo their spell list if they wanted to. And uh, when Cletus went from being a human cleric to a bugbear, uh, we just started as a zero level character and built her right back up to, I think they were level three at the time. Uh, so I'm perfectly, obviously I have no problem with doing that because I would like the characters to reflect what the, the players want in the world. And it won't be any, you know, it's, I don't think it will break the game in any way to do that. Uh, my wife was expressing that Malt is just not as uh, tough as she would like him to be or it to be. Uh, although he has a bunch of other abilities that are more kind of utilitarian that she's gotten really great use out of. So we'll see what comes of that. I think a lot of it too is just how effective um, FJ is in combat, especially right now. So FJ found the sword Wraithbane in our last adventure uh, at the Tower of Whispers, and in specific circumstances, Wraithbane does an additional d6 of damage versus undead creatures, and this particular keep just happens to be full of undead creatures. Um, I don't think anywhere else we're going to go in the near future will be, but for right now, it's really uh, shining a spotlight on FJ in those combats and making at least uh, my wife feel like Mulch is a little uh, a little underwhelming in comparison. Of course, Mulch has a similar ability, uh, although I'm not sure how aware she is of it, so we'll talk about this. Mulch actually uh, made physical contact with the ghost route while they were in the Tower of Whispers, and then when they confronted a group of Blight cultists, uh, this little bit, they discovered that a little bit of, a little root, a little root of the ghost root had uh, uh, taken root, that's uh, using the word root too many times, but uh, (laughs) had basically implanted itself in uh, Mulch's palm, and as Mulch moved into combat with the Blight cultists, this bit of ghost root reacted violently to that, and grew tremendously and spread up his mace, uh, covering in just thick spiny barbs, uh, a bit like the shillelagh cantrip, I guess, maybe, from 5th edition. Uh, that, that sort of idea of turning a mundane thing into a magical thing in certain circumstances, and uh, mulch laid waste to the, the Blight cultists. Um, and I don't know, I guess I just, I have a, I like 
magical weapons that do that, uh, that they are particularly powerful in certain circumstances, but not all the time. Um, but Mulch also has the ability to talk to rocks and trees and grass and uh, managed to make contact with the Ghost Root and got all of the information that has led them on their own kind of self-designed quest that they're on right now. So hopefully we won't do go too far uh, with redesigning Mulch. Uh, I think it may just be recontextualizing things. It, it also doesn't help or didn't doesn't help the perception that uh, FJ's character is 100% geared towards physical combat. They are a fighter type, and all of their talents uh, play off of each other that way. Um, they have one talent that allows them to, uh, called girded loins, that allows them to uh, half the damage they take from uh, one blow once per combat, and we happened to be in two discrete combats this last session, and so we employ that twice. Um, <clears throat> He's also got one, I think it's called Savage Fighter, that when you take down one foe, you can make an immediate attack on an adjacent foe if there's one handy. Uh, so he used it against the zombies outside and then used it again against the skeletons inside. And the skeletons don't have that ability to get back up the way the zombies do. So they're just little five hit point minions, essentially, for these guys. Um, so, yeah, so FJ was in rare form in the fight. And uh, I think, yeah. So I, th I think the, it was, their, their prowess was a bit uh, amplified just by the situations they happened to find themselves in this time. Uh, and then Farkhan, uh, Farkhan's player also is uh, finding themselves a little bored with the Elf Ranger. Um, they have terrible luck. They tend to low roll really badly. Um, but I, I think they're also coming to the conclusion that they might have built a one-trick pony that is not satisfying in the same way that the one-trick uh, combat pony that is FJ uh, is for their player. So uh, we'll have to play around with that. I'm looking forward to those conversations. We're going to get together over Zoom and, and, and rework stuff. Um, I think it might be interesting to pull some magic stuff into the Ranger, perhaps, kind of going with later editions of D&D where they've got some spells. Uh, in Glaive, anyone can cast spells. As long as they've got uh, the inventory slots to hold the spell books, uh, we can rework those spell books as some other item or just perhaps just arrows that take up, for whatever reason, take up an inventory slot. And they can use the bow as a casting device. Um, you know, some web spells and... Uh, or hold person or whatever. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of interesting utility spells that would have a, they'd be very interesting as, as ranger attacks. Um, I'll have to go through the fourth and fifth edition ranger stuff looking for ideas, I guess. Um, and I think that's about it. So I'm rambling now. Uh, we'll end it here and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Lonely Adventurer out.